0: Well, good evening. It is great to see you out this evening with a start to a new series. Uh, We've already launched, as it were, last week into the book of Hebrews, but tonight we really get into the meat of the text and a jumping off point for us. And so as we do that tonight, we are digging deep into the text that is before, and I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. A few years ago, really it's only been uh, just a couple years ago, I was asked the question What is the greatest error or perhaps heresy that we're seeing in the church today? Uh, This was a question that I was asked uh, just somewhat randomly. And I put some thought to it and I began to realize that perhaps the greatest issue, the greatest heresy that we're seeing, or perhaps the greatest doctrine that is being attacked is that of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. There is great question about the person of Christ and who he is, what he has done for us. And perhaps more than at any time in modern history or recent history, we are starting to see attack on the very person of Christ. This should be somewhat frightening to us, somewhat alarming at least, maybe not frightening, but alarming to us, to recognize that it's the very person of Christ that is coming under attack. And we just sang about it just a few moments ago. There is one gospel, and that gospel hasn't ever changed. And since the gospel hasn't changed, then Christ has remained, and that is where we're seeing the error today. There's question marks about the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, about the sacrifice of Christ, and so on. Throughout all of the doctrine of Christology, this seems to be the doctrine that at least this generation has as its pet doctrine to attack. That is part of the reason why we're studying the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that is deep in its description of who Christ is. It will expand our souls as we encounter and understand an uh, an expanding understanding of Christ. As we are getting into this study, it is important that we understand that the book of Hebrews presents the greatness of Christ as no other New Testament writing does. There's great passages throughout the New Testament that define and describe the character and the person of Christ, but none quite as intensely as the book of Hebrews. While it does so, it reminds us of the sacrificial system. That's described in Leviticus. And so, as elders, a few moments ago we were back praying, and the question was asked Are we going to sprinkle Hebrew, or rather Leviticus, through our study of the book of Hebrews? And the answer is yes. I'm not sure how exactly we're going to do that yet, but yes, we will be working with Hebrews and Leviticus together over these weeks that we will spend here. However, I will caution you this as we dig into the book of Hebrews, buckle up because we're going to be covering the book of Hebrews very, very quickly, considering the length of this book. We could easily spend years in Hebrews, but we will not do that. At least, Lord willing, we will not do that. Uh, We're going to spend just about a half a year here, and then we'll sprinkle Leviticus in as well, so maybe a little bit longer uh, for the sake of getting Leviticus in. But we want to understand the general overall umbrella picture. And so we want to be found faithful In doing so. And so, as we begin to understand it, we recognize that not only will this expand our understanding of the greatness of Christ, but it also repeatedly demands a response from you and I. The book of Hebrews is not one that we just passively read and then move on. The book of Hebrews is going to require you to respond to it. And so, we see it first as an understanding of the greatness of Christ, and secondly, that it demands a response from you and I, its readers. And so we want to be found faithful in seriously considering how Hebrews will cause us to grow in Christ and Christ-likeness. And so that is our overall goal as we begin to dig into the superiority of Christ in verses 1 through 3 of the first chapter. Now, as I said, we're going to be moving rapidly through the book. We will not spend another night on three verses in the book of Hebrews. This is the only night we're going to slow down this much, and that is because we find really the formation of such a critical book here, where the description of the character of Christ is given to us, and we're going to spend some time here as it lays the foundation for the rest of the book. As we begin then in the book of Hebrews, let us ask the Lord's blessing as we get started tonight. Lord, we praise you and thank you for where we were last week, and digging into some of the introduction material that is necessary for us to study Hebrews. And having established that, now we pray that you would give us understanding of the person of Christ. As we dig into these verses, we recognize that there is perhaps no greater passage in all of the New Testament, in all of writing combined, in all of the inspired Word of God that describes Christ so acutely, so quickly in these seven quick, succinct statements of the work of Christ and the person of Christ. Lord, these will be those which we dwell on for an eternity. And so our few moments together tonight will hardly do it justice. But I pray that we'd be diligent students of your word, that we'd begin to understand and dig into this passage that is before us tonight so that we can expand upon it in the coming weeks to follow through chapters 1 Through the end of the book to chapter 13, in succinct and quick order, that we'd have a great understanding of this book. Lord, we praise you that Christ is our perfect sacrifice. He is preeminent in every way. He is above the prophets of the Old Testament. He is above the law and fulfillment of the law. He is preeminent in all ways over creation and the angelic order. So as these are the three pillars of Judaism and what they view as preeminent, we praise you that we look to Christ as the preeminent one. While these things are certainly important, we recognize that they are second to Christ. So in that understanding and given that context, I pray that we'd be diligent and faithful students of your word, recognizing the supreme importance of the text that is before us. In a day and age that is questioning everything, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the work of Christ, that we would be ready with answers, answers that are rooted in the truth of the Word of God and the power therein. And that as we begin to proclaim those truths, we would have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So, Lord, I pray that this would open up doors for us to not only expand in our own faith, but that we would expand in the proclamation of the one who has saved us. And we would give you the glory and the honor for it. Lord, we ask that your spirit would aid in these prayers when we do not know what to ask or how to ask. We pray that you would give me the voice to speak tonight. The truth that is enabled by your spirit to be spoken. That your name would be glorified both in the preaching, and the hearing, and the responding to your word. We give you the glory and the honor for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we dig in, your outline in your bulletin is similar to what we've had. It's relatively simple. I will say you're going to want to save enough space at the end because the last point has seven subpoints underneath it. So you're going to want to save some space there and to fill in some detail. But the first two, I also recognize are supremely important. And so uh, we gave you some space to work through that as we first begin with speaking through the prophets in verse one. And notice the beginning of the book. The writer of Hebrews does not begin with some sort of introduction. He starts out in these words, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The writer of Hebrews jumps right into it. And we talked about who the writer may be, and we discussed that a little bit last week. But not like Pauline writings. He doesn't say, I, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Paul, an apostle. We don't see any of that heading. Uh, Likely, as I said last week, it wasn't Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews. So we skip the common epistle beginning, and we jump right into the text. Long ago, in many ways, or many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. It is important that you and I understand, as the writer of Hebrews is jumping off into the text right here, that he immediately starts by addressing the key issues of Judaism. Within Judaism, remember, as we studied last week, there are three pillars, three elements of faith that they view as preeminent over all other things. First is the law. They view the law as preeminent, they view the prophets as preeminent, and they view the angelic world as preeminent. But the writer of Hebrews says, while those things are important, they are all secondary to Christ. And so he doesn't waste time saying hello, he jumps right into the letter and says that we have, through the prophets, the word of God. This is a significant statement and one that should not pass us by because we're trying to get further into the letter. This is important. The passage that is being inaugurated here is one of the most significant passages of Christological importance in all of the pages of Scripture. We may find sections of great importance like John 1 and Colossians 1, but none of them combine the great detail that we find here in the book of Hebrews. And how does it begin? It begins by reminding the reader of the Word of God spoken because of God or through God speaking in prophets. The book starts with three consecutive adverbs. It's an interesting start. It, it starts in such a way as to place emphasis on what God has done. The writer is not giving time for the Hebrew to begin to put in Judaistic ideals. He starts with saying, what has God done? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. That is the emphasis of the very first words of the book of Hebrews. God spoke. And he gives to us the progressive nature of revelation throughout the Old Testament. Specifically, as the Word of God was spoken by God. The revelation of God's Word was not at all all at once given in the same way. In fact, as you look through the pages of the Old Testament, you're going to see that the Word of God came through various means. It came through visions, such as in Daniel, It came by the spoken word of God as to Moses. It came by the written word of God as God would even write on the tablets the Ten Commandments. And so we see various ways in which God spoke through the prophets of old to give His word. Prophecy, though, in all of the manners in which it was given, did not originate within the thought processes or the willful desires of the prophets and the sages. It's important that you and I understand the great truth that Peter would pick up on. And as we begin, this is where the writer of Hebrews starts. So let's turn to the book of 2 Peter for just a moment, 2 Peter 1.21, to a very familiar text for us, 2 Peter 1.21. We looked at this not long ago together as we were studying hearing the Word of God. When Peter writes, he's writing this very important passage and one that is th- should be thrilling to our soul. He writes this in Second Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men carried, or, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is writing of a sure testimony, a lamp that is shining in the darkness, and he's speaking of his own testimony as being subservient to the prophecy that the Spirit of God moved holy men of old to write. That is the same idea that the writer of Hebrews picks up on. This significant statement in 2 Peter that holy men of old spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit helps us understand that regardless of the way that God would communicate his message to the prophets when they wrote, Inspired of the Holy Spirit, they wrote the Word of God. That's what they wrote. They may have used their personalities. They may have used their style. But it was the message of God that was spoken through them. In fact, we begin to recognize, as the writer of Hebrews continues to tear down the Israel's view of the preeminence of the prophets, that he is putting special emphasis in Hebrews chapter 1 that it was God who spoke through them. Peter agrees in 2 Peter. Peter affirms that message. But as we begin to recognize, we recognize from even before the pre formation or the formation of the nation of Israel, and both to the exile and post exilic times in Israel's history, its leaders and people of Israel had heard from God by way of many spokesmen. By many ways, but there was all one tie together. The message was God's. That is something that is completely unique to the Word of God. If you are one who is interested in apologetics, the defense of the Word of God, or you're one who just wants to be able to defend the historicity, the inspiration of the Word of God, it is vital for you and I to understand that despite its many authors, despite its number of years, Despite the stylistic elements of the authors, the message is and has always been God's. Therefore, what you hold in your hand is the inspired 66 books of the Word of God. And it is vitally important that you and I hold near to it the truths that are found in it. You and I ought to be those who live it out and practice it, because it is indeed the Word of God. The author is intent, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, to say, to indicate, that it was God who spoke. It was God who moved. Even the phrase, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, would be better translated, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. That He was their mouthpiece. That they spoke what He said to speak. The message was God's message, and the prophets were his instruments, but the message was the Lord's. So the writer of Hebrews is not backing off on the importance of the written word of God, but he is helping the reader understand the second place that the prophets took to Christ. Because notice what he says next. He is now speaking through his Son. Look into verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Just the first part of that, the writer is revealing that God, is now, that God now has spoken through his Son. And in essence, we could say this, instead of, but in these last days, we could say, but now. There's a clear contrast between verses 1 and verse 2. In these last days, or we may say even in that, that recently, Recently, rather. So in these last days, or recently, God has spoken to us by his Son. It's interesting the contrast that takes place, because in verse 1 to verse 2, there are some challenging linguistic elements to it. In verse 1, the emphasis is only on God spoke. That's the emphasis. That is what the sentence structure is built around, God spoke. But when we come to verse 2... The writer is indicating that the revelation given through the the Son is not as progressive as it had been in the Old Testament through the prophets and that the emphasis suggests that God's most recent revelation is superior because it is the Son. So the emphasis goes on to the Son instead of God speaking. The emphasis is on the Son, on Christ. Earlier... He spoke through the prophets, but now he is speaking in his son Nis, as it were, as one author put it. His son Nis, which is unique. In fact, this phrase, this entire phrase, but in these last days, that phrase in these last days is only used one time in the New Testament. And you just read it. It's here. It's the only time that it's used. There is a uniqueness to what the author is saying And no other author used, and the writer of Hebrews didn't use it again, used this phrase. There's uniqueness here. The writer is now not stressing so much what God said, but he is stressing the means by which it came. Instead of God speaking, he's addressing the Son. The emphasis is shifting, and it's an important emphasis to see shift, Because the rest of the chapter will build on the preeminence of Christ. The rest of the chapter will address Christ's superiority and preeminence over the prophets. His superiority and preeminence over the angelic realm, which is the crux of what's going to come in chapter 1. And also his superiority and preeminence over the law. And so right off the bat, the writer of Hebrews is attacking the pillars of Judaism That he is saying Christ is superior to these things, these elements. Christ is superior. What an important distinction in our age. Where Judaism may not be the the threat against Christian doctrine of Christ, but instead we see the erosion of the doctrine of Christ. Isn't it comforting to know that Christ is preeminent over all things? And that's where the writer of Hebrews is building upon right now. If the Word of God is indeed authoritative, and it is, Christ is superior. Christ is superior. We hold this Word of God as authoritative, inspired Word of God, and rightly so. But Christ is preeminent. That is where the writer of Hebrews is pointing his readers and you and I counted among them. This time, instead of Revelation coming through the prophets, Revelation did not come through the prophets. It did not come by an angel. This time it came by the Son, the Son of God. It's interesting, Son is singular, as in contrast to the prophets. It was many prophets, but one Son. One that was spoken through. He spoke unto us because the New Testament believers are the recipients of the New Testament revelation. The writer is emphasizing the preeminence of Christ over the law, over the prophets, and over the angelic realm. And he will do so by establishing seven points of description that we're about to get to, and we're going to spend the majority of our time on. But in preparation for moving in that direction, it is vitally important that we understand the role that Christ plays and the role that we have the New Testament Word of God as well. And so what is the, is the author who is writing the inspired Word of God in Hebrews, is he denying the inspiration of the New Testament? The answer to that is no. But what comes into the New Testament is revealed through Christ. And so this is the end of the revelation, and that is where we build to in the book of Revelation that we do not add to or nor take away from those words. So the writer of Hebrews is affirming the New Testament as well as the Old, but in the New Testament he is pointing to a conclusion of the revelation that you and I will receive. It's fascinating that he is doing this, because there are those in our society today that say that God is still revealing his word, and he's doing it in various means and methods, and the writer of Hebrews would adamantly disagree that Christ is the completion of that revelation. And so it would be appropriate for you and I to say that there is special revelation, that is, the Word of God, and there is specific revelation, that is, Christ. And the special revelation finds its conclusion and its completion in Christ. And so when the apostles passed away, the Word of God was complete. The revelation was complete. There is no new revelation today. The writer of Hebrews is picking up on that by speaking of the preeminence of Christ, even in just the beginning of verse 2. And so we then move on. That builds the foundation upon which we now build. We're going to see it continue to expand, but we see this expanding in verses 2 and 3 as we now have the seven points. This is where you needed the space in your outline. Seven points that reveal the nature and the character of, Of Christ. And we're going to try to spend a little time here as we have. This was part of your homework this past week. You were supposed to spend time here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, dwelling on spending time looking into these seven statements of Christ, who he is, and what he has done. But we're going to spend a little time here tonight as well. First, notice in verse 2 that the first description of him is that he was appointed the heir of all things. That's the first description of Christ, appointed the heir of all things. This is reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7, so keep your finger here in Hebrews. We're going to return, but turn over to Daniel. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, and we will see the description of this one who is to come in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, and reading through verse 14, the scripture says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion, which is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel has received this vision from the Lord, and the vision that he sees is the coming Son of God, the Son of Man, who will establish His kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom to come. This is a kingdom that has not yet happened. But what the writer of Hebrews is picking up on is that Christ is already the heir of all things. The fruition of all of that has not yet come to completion. But that nonetheless does not change its status. Christ is the heir of all things, and Daniel points to what those all things are. All peoples, all nations, languages should serve him, his dominion which is everlasting, dominion which shall not pass away, and a kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so he is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And so when we understand this, and there are multiple other passages that we could look into, we begin to recognize that the superiority of Christ is above all other beings. All created beings. He not being created. Daniel reminds us of the superiority of Christ. This points to Christ, all of, all of this this passage and many others, Colossians, John, many other places as well, all point to his being the focal point of the universe because he is the goal of history. He's the goal of history, and he is the end of all things. He is the heir. There are no others after him. You can be joint heirs with him as we Enjoy in, in the recognition of the salvific elements of our faith. We are heirs with Christ, but He is the heir of all things. This means that He has universal lordship and the ability to exercise that over all creation, which requires that He cannot be anything less than God this very first statement that the writer of Hebrews makes points directly to his authority as divine. Christ is preeminently divine. He didn't rise up the chain to divinity. He is only divine in the sense of his heirship. He also has brought on humanity but he no he did not in any way diminish his divinity. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing to his preeminence as the heir of all things. And he jumps then straight into the next truth that through him through whom he also created the world that is through Christ the father created the world. This statement points to the Messiah as being the beginning point of the universe. He is the one who started it all. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians Colossians chapter 1. What the writer of Hebrews declares in one quick sentence, one quick statement, partial sentence. Christ is the beginning of all things. We may be confused in verse 14, or rather verse 15 of Colossians 1, when it says that he is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn does not mean that he was created. It means that he was and is preeminent, He's the first among, first above. That's what it means here in Colossians 1.15. He's not counted as those who are created. He's above those who are created because he is the originator of all things. That statement, too, points directly to the divinity of Christ. That statement for the readers who had a Hebrew background would begin to solidify in their minds that this Christ was not a mere prophet, but that he is truly God. Everything that exists was made by Christ. This includes everything that exists under the aspect of all time. Everything in God's program, in the aspect of time, is all completely under the control of Christ. He is the one who operates the universe through its successive ages and dispensations. He's not only speaking of what was created in the matter and the beings that were created, but also the time and the space in which it was created. This is an all-encompassing term. He is the creator of time itself. He's the creator of dispensations and the sustainer of them. This points directly to the divinity of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews jumps straight into it by not giving any quarter to any idea that Christ is anything less than the preeminent Son of God. And to that end, he moves to the next point at the beginning of verse 3 by saying he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. This points out that he has the co-essence of deity. In my systematic theology class a year ago, we talked about the Trinity and how the three members of the Trinity were co-equal and co-identical and co-essential. That is, they're co in their essence. They're the same. All three members, one God in three persons, are the same. There's no difference between them. The writer of Hebrews is saying that he possesses full deity. This is his role before history began and will be his role after history ends. He is fully divine. The radiance of the glory of God. This is what John means in John chapter 1. Go back now. We're coming back to Hebrews again here in a moment, but go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we have another significant and important statement on the deity of Christ and the creation work that Christ has done. But John chapter 1, notice this text specifically as we move down into the text. But in verse 1, we have these words, In the beginning was the Word, in other words, He was already existing, John 1.1. 1, 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, a statement of His divinity, who He is affirming what we've read in the book of Hebrews. But skip down to verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is what John is declaring, that the writer of Hebrews has stated in a different way, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the light that shines when no other light would shine. The glory of God shining in a dark place. The radiance of the light of life, and in Christ is life. And the life was the light to men. Christ is the brilliant radiance of the glory of God. That is His character, as it is the Father's character. There's no difference. And then the writer of Hebrews builds to... The one that has fascinated me for a long period of time. And this is kind of right in the middle of these statements on the character of Christ back in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I shared a little bit of this last week as we think of your distinct fingerprints. They're unique to you. The reason that I marvel at this, I was out sitting out in, uh, in a place hunting this past fall and it was snowing just very lightly and the flakes were all perfect snowflakes. Every single one of them was absolutely perfect. And as they landed, not a single one was the same. You know that. Not a single one was the same. And yet, my mind went back to this passage in Hebrews. Where your fingerprints are distinct to you, unique to you, so much so that they can tell you apart from every other human being on the planet at any time. Your fingerprints are distinctly yours. This tiny snowflake that fell from the sky is distinct, unique from every other snowflake that it came before or after it, and melts just as fast as it was formed. And yet Christ is the exact imprint of the Father. That statement, when we see all of the uniqueness in creation, that statement boggles the finite mind, at least my finite mind. That Christ is the exact imprint of the Father. This is the very character of God's substance The Greek word that means to have this exact imprint, the Greek word for that, refers to a perfect representation of the divine essence. There's nothing lacking. There's not a crack, there's not a crevice, there's not a change between the Father and the Son. There's nothing of difference in substance. It is also a Greek word that was used for an engraving tool from which a coin die was made. So when you take the the coin billet that moves through and is stamped, the stamp that forces the exact imprints every single time, that was the word that was used here by the writer of Hebrews to refer to Christ. He is the exact imprint every time. When the die is pressed against the metal and lifted off, the coin had the exact representation of the die which stamped it. That is somewhat of an earthly description of what it means to be the exact imprint of his nature. The understanding that you and I need to glean from this is the Son is the true personality of deity. It boggles my mind that we live in a world that has attacked the Christological importance of Christ and His work. We have attacked this doctrine, but do we understand who we've attacked? He is very God of very God. One in three. Three in one. He is the precise reproduction of the Father. He is... Everything that is true of the Father is true of the Son in every respect. This is the Trinity being played out for you and I, and we struggle to wrap our minds around it. We cannot fully gather the truth that is found here of the Trinity that is being expressed here. He has all of the same attributes of deity that the Father has in every single way. Nothing is lacking. Nothing is missing. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. So when the Jewish Hebrew is reading the book of Hebrews and he sees the superiority of Christ, he cannot, from verse 3, believe in any way that Christ is anything less than superior over all things because he is very god a very god this is not a truth that we can punt around and play with why because the writer of hebrews goes on verse 3 he says he's the excuse me the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power He upholds the universe by his power. This refers to the sustaining work of Christ. It's fascinating to me that the writer would begin to move from the nature of Christ, that is who he is, to now what he does. Christ is the sustainer, the governor of the universe. This is his role throughout all of history. The picture that he is In the middle, or rather we should picture that he is in the middle of all things, controlling and holding up, sustaining all things by the word of his power. This concerns that the Messiah is the one who sustains all things. He carries all things and he is moving the whole universe to a predetermined goal set by the Father. He is the one who is bringing us to the place where we will need to be. Now step out of what the writer of Hebrews is saying and step into our world today. Isn't it wonderful to know that as chaotic as our political system is, as chaotic as the social media world is, as crazy as the wars and the rumors of wars are, that Christ is sustaining all things to the predetermined end, predetermined goal, which only he can arrive at, cause us to arrive at. Isn't it wonderful to know that Christ is the one who's in control? It's fascinating to me that the world has tried to remove that control from the Lord and has tried to make it so that we, in some way and in some how, in some capacity, can control when this world will spin out of control or remain in control. And yet, Christ is the one who holds it all together. I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but it was fascinating this week to go back. The the United States has gone back to the moon for the first time in 50 years or so. But I was reading today that they believe that the lunar lander tipped on landing. They're testing to make sure that it's upright the way that it's supposed to be. And I was thinking of this text We who believe that we can change times in the universe by simple changing of our habits and our behaviors and our practices and deny the one who actually holds it all together. We can't even land a lunar lander on the moon without complications. How magnificent! How wonderful! To serve the one who holds all things together. That's where the writer of Hebrews drives his point. Christ is superior because he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's a spoken word, it's a move of worldwide governments and billionaire institutions. To put one little landing craft on the moon, but by the word of his power, Christ holds the universe to its completed end, to its goal, to its purposes, just by spoken word. That's the same Christ who died on the cross for you and I who rose again victorious over sin and death. Not limited as you and I are limited, but giving to us a free gift of eternal life. The preeminent one. But the writer of Hebrews goes on. That's where he's headed, is that great truth. He says this. He says in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power after making purification for sins. This this truth should boggle your mind. The one who holds the universe together by the word of his power. The spoken word. All he has to say is this is the end. This is its goal. This is how we're going to get there. And it runs its course in obedience to the one who created it. And yet, he steps into that creation and he makes the purification for sins. The writer of Hebrews is now addressing that Christ is preeminent over the law. He's the one who made purification for sins. As we will see in bouncing back and forth through the book of Leviticus, there is all kinds of purification rituals and laws in the book of Leviticus. There is all kinds of necessary things that need to be done. But when... The writer of Hebrews says that after making the purification for sins, he is revealing and emphasizing that the Son is man's redeemer. The words making for purification refer to his priestly work. That is why the book of Leviticus is so necessary to helping us understand the book of Hebrews. Because it is the Levitical law that it becomes very important for you and I to understand. This making purification refers to the priestly work of Christ. And with that expression, the writer is already introducing Jesus in terms of his priesthood, something he's going to spend three chapters developing in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Christ is preeminent. Christ is superior to the Levitical law. Because he made the purification for sins. By dying for you and I. Some key points of that sacrifice, he accomplished all of it by himself. You and I did not help him. You and I had no part other than had we been there that day, we would have raised our angry little fists and shouted, crucify him. No one else provided this redemption. Christ alone it achieved the sacrificial purpose of cleansing because he made purification it is the finished work is seen as something that is already done and there is nothing more needed to do to provide purification so not only did he provide it he provided for it completely and it is not merely an outward cleansing but a purification of sins It is not just the external washings. So what are those points again of the purification for sins? He accomplished the purification by himself. No one else helped. No one else helped provide redemption. It achieved the sacrificial purpose of cleansing because he was the one who made purification. It is the finished work as seen as something that is already done. It's already been completed and there is nothing more that... He needs to do to provide purification for mankind or that we can do to provide purification. There was nothing left after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't go, oh wait, I missed one little part. There was no such thing. And it is not merely an outward cleansing but a purification of sins as the sacrificial system of the law had just been an outward purification. This was more than an outward. It was a complete cleansing, an inward cleansing Of the purification of sins. And then the final one, back in Hebrews chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I don't know if you followed through this week and spent some time in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I hope you did. If you didn't this past week, do it this week and spend time dwelling, meditating on this truth. That he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is much that could be said. There's a whole sermon series based upon this one verse that I could preach and have preached in times past. But he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This shows Christ as sovereign over humanity. He is the one who has the right to rule. His sitting down emphasizes his completed work. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. It says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The writer of Hebrews believes this to be so important, he reiterates it. It says, Christ did this one time, one sacrifice for all time. And when he was done, he sat down at the right hand of, of God. The fact that he is at the right hand of God the Father emphasizes him as equal. No one sits at the right hand of the Father, except the equal, who is Christ. Co-equal. Coessential. We see two elements of what it means to be the Trinity. Demonstrated in these seven statements. His present work at the right hand of the Father is not just idleness. The present work of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father is, according to Romans chapter 8, interceding for you. He's interceding for you. So the sacrifice is the mediator who is superior and preeminent over the law. The one who made purifications for sins is the one who argues your case before a holy and awesome God. Within the first three verses, the writer establishes the important theme of the preeminence of Christ over the prophets, over the law, and over all creation, including the angelic realm. In order to understand the book of Hebrews, we needed to spend time in verses 1 through 3. We need this as the foundation to help us understand the critical truths that are to follow. Each of the three pinnacles of the Jewish tradition and faith have been eroded, not that they are less important than they were before, but that Christ is more important. And so it is essential for the Hebrew, to understand the preeminence of Christ. And it's essential for you and I to understand, who know Christ as Savior, to understand the preeminence of Christ. We need to understand who He is. This truth will help us, will enable us rather, to be better as we seek to understand holiness, righteousness, and the character of Christ as we study this book together. These seven things about the Son show that the Son is qualified to be the unique revealer superior to the prophets. That makes Him qualified to be the final revealer, bringing the goal of the Old Testament prophecy to its finality in Christ. Not only does this qualify Him to be the final revealer, but it also qualifies Him to be the authenticator of all previous revelations that God has. Gave by diverse portions and diverse manners, as some of your translations say, at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. As my translations say, at many times and in many ways. Christ is the authenticator of the Word of God. And so, as we begin this study through the book of Hebrews together, it is my desire that you will be reading ahead, that you will be prepared, because we need you to be prepared. So read ahead, chapters 1 and 2 this week, because next week, Lord willing, we're going to cover all of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 as we seek to move rapidly through the book of Hebrews. We will see immediately, beginning in the next verse, verse 4, that Christ is much superior over the angels. And we will begin to understand the holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we study this book together. So with that, let us end this evening in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for this evening time, the opportunity to dig into this critical book. Lord, we spent some time here in just the first three verses, and I pray that this would have been important and valuable to our understanding of the book. Lord, we're going to be moving more rapidly in the coming days, and so I pray that we'd be diligent to stay ahead in the study of Hebrews. It is a fascinating letter, it is one that should cause us to grow in our love for you. But we recognize that it is one that we often flee from, at least from the pulpit, because of the challenges and the difficulties of understanding this letter. But I praise you that we have the opportunity to study it together, and so I pray that your spirit would aid in our understanding, that he would give us not only the understanding, but the application of what we need to learn as we spend time together in the book of Hebrews. Or as we depart from here, may we depart as those who do not question the preeminence of Christ, but instead that we would look at the world around us as that which is held together. By the power of the word of Christ. The one who would become the redeemer of mankind. And the one who would become our mediator. Sitting at the right hand, the majesty on high. Lord, I pray that tonight we would have renewed awe and vigor to serve Christ more diligently than we came in with. And that your name would be glorified as we depart from here. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.